This is Iron Sports. We're so honored to have uh, NFL Hall of Famer, Miami Dolphin legend, author of Head On, Larry Zonka. Thanks a lot, Larry, for coming on Iron Sports. Well, thank you, Ira. Thanks for having me on. So you have this book out called Head On, and I'm going to say the cover of the book is scary because my lights are off in my bedroom and I look at it, and it is, it just, it's your helmet with you and your helmet with the lights, and I got scared. You're like ready to play right now. <laughs> well, that picture was originally taken back in the 70s. I had my uniform on for a Surrey's ad, men's clothing store, and they did a kind of head-on shot. But it turned out to be a, a great depiction of, uh, you know, right before a play, but you're, you're looking at the defense, they're looking at you, and you put it, it's like being right in the action. So it's been 50 years. It was 50 years before the first undefeated team when you in 72 when you were un, went undefeated. And it's been 50 years after. And now this book comes out on that anniversary. of, And it's just a perfect book for the time. But really, what was the impact, do you think, of that team, of the 72 team that went undefeated? Well, I think it was a very heavy impact. The NFL recently voted as the top team in, in the first 100 years of the NFL. And, uh, you know, that it means a lot when you contrast that against the teams today. But at the same time, it's a very changing game because the rules have changed so much from the time it was initiated 100 years ago or a little over 100 years ago to what they are today. So it's, it's hard to compare what was in the past with what's in the present. But the important thing, it's changing for the better and it's changing for the protection of the players. It's, it's amazing. I mean, I think when you went undefeated in 72, people were like, oh, someone will do it. You know, every now and then, someone then, when I think after when Brady and Belichick and Randy Moss, when they failed, you know, against the Giants, thanks to Tom Coughlin, your former Syracuse teammate, I think after that, people said, boy, what they really did in 72 was, was, was really hard. It is hard to go undefeated. Well, it's, it's almost impossible, particularly it gets more and more difficult. The season gets longer. The rules change. Um, you know, back in our day, ball control was the big thing. And if you got two touchdowns ahead, the game was kind of over. And if it was more than two touchdowns, by halftime, a lot of people just got out of their seats and went home because <laughs> it was hopeless. But today's game's different. Uh, you know, the rules have changed and enhanced the passing game. And now, even if you're 17 points down at the half, uh, many teams have, have come back and won it. So... Uh, like one of my friends I was talking to the other day, he's taking his kids to uh, this one camp for football and another camp for football and conditioning drills and all these different things that he has to do. He's in his car the entire weekend getting his kid ready for football. He's like seven, eight years old. I love what you wrote in your book. Your preparation for football was working on a farm and getting feed through a bunch of cows. That was the practice that you had to become a Hall of Famer. Well, that was the physical side. The mental side came at the hands of my junior high principal when I got in trouble with the juvenile authorities and was handed to him. And he had me read books on football and diagram plays and so that I would understand football. And that probably is the most important thing today to enhance a kid's chances of having a career in the NFL or in, in football at all is to make sure that he understands what each position is and what its function is and how the thing operates on a team capacity. If you can get that across through flag football or in an early time in their in, in younger years before they get to junior high and start playing tackle football, that understanding the game is probably the biggest first step. And then you, they wanted to put you always on defense. And you're like, I want to be on offense. And the, I guess that's one of the reasons you went to Syracuse. You were the star high school player, but outside in Ohio, outside Akron. But you're like, you know, if I'm going to go to a school, I want to play offense. I just don't want to play defense. 
Well, that's why I picked Syracuse, just like Tom Coughlin did. Several of us that were larger type running backs looked at the possibility because Jim Nance came from there, Jim uh, Jim Brown, Ernie Davis, Floyd Little. There was an ongoing litany of great running backs that were in excess of 200, 220 pounds that came from Syracuse. So that was the place you wanted to go if you wanted a shot at being in that backfield. And you were you were up over 220 pounds. And we, we talk about today about these backfields by committee. But you you were in a backfield by committee all the time. You were with Hall of Famer Floyd Little and Syracuse in the backfield. And still, you rushed for your your record at Syracuse was uh, almost 3,000 yards. And I checked it up, and that was the record at the time. You're still fourth in the all-time Syracuse record, you know, 50 years later. Yeah, well, like I said, the rules change, the game changes. Uh, fortunately, it changes for the better in the protection of the players. And I think, you know, there's always an argument. There's always a contrast, certainly. And I lean towards the old rules more than I lean towards the new ones as far as favoritism, as far as a player's concerned. But as a spectator, I think the game's gotten better and better. And I I loved how you talked in your book about your preparation to get drafted. Like some guys, they talk about the combine. I guess there was no combine back then. But you went to the Hula Bowl and the East-West Shrine game, and your coach at the time from Syracuse said, just go there and do the best you can because that's what's going to help you get drafted. And that's what you did, I guess, being the MVP of both bowls. Well, that was motivation to have a good look. You know, I was in hopes of uh, Green Bay or perhaps Cleveland. You know, I grew up in, in the Cleveland area. And watch Jim Brown run as a as a kid, again, you know, hiding away in the stadium until he could get to watch the game. But you know, I was in hopes that that would uh, I would be drafted as a running back in the NFL, and and hopefully one of those teams that would employ that. But uh, I was drafted by Miami. I certainly didn't have any misgivings about that. A young team coming on, but then two years later, well, I cover all this in the book. But when Coach Shula came. You know, we had that hurdle to go over because he had never had a very large running back before in, in excess of 230 pounds. And first thing he did was move my weight down. And the second thing we did was get in an argument. <laughs> we argued the whole whole rest of the time. But I think we found a comfortable position for both of us and tolerated each other enough that we could uh, get our jobs done. The team that you joined in Miami and had been there only a couple years. You come down to Miami, and it's a little bit different. We're broadcasting right now in South Florida on, uh, from all the way from Miami Gardens all the way to Port St. Lucie. So we're used to the Marlins and the Heats and the Panthers and you know all these other Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But you were the only game in town there in the whole th- the whole game in the state in Florida. It must have been cool to be you know the football team, the only pro team in the entire like region. Well, I touch on that in the book. It was a coming together of a lot of different things. If you recall, or maybe you're not old enough to recall, but I can recall, in the in the 60s, there was a lot of strife, a lot of uh, civil strife going on, racial uh, stress. There was, there was a, a lot of things that led to trouble. And it was nice to have a football team that was a gathering point. And then, of course, two years into it, we were the worst team in the league, but we still had a lot of a lot of friends in the end zones and things that would come into the game because you could get into the game for two bucks. <laughs> it was no big deal. You'd wait until game day. You could get into the end zone for a couple bucks. So we had a following, but then Coach Shula came and we started to win. And I've never seen a more significant unifying factor for a community that was really at odds with each other than, than to have a winning football team right in the heart of one of the worst areas in Miami. And it made a difference. I touch on it. Or, well, I don't touch on it. I dwell on it in the book quite a bit. We talk about it, uh, about being involved with the different folks that were there around the Orange Bowl and in a, in a lot of strife. 
I think it was a key ingredient for Miami to come together and start to have something in common with each other instead of outlining all the differences we had. Yeah, we're talking to Larry Zonka, author of Head On. It's available at Barnes & Noble, uh, uh, any store, Amazon, online, everything. A great, great read about the Miami Dolphins. Um, I loved what you talked about in the book about, I just was at the Tampa Bay Buccaneer game, and after the game's over and they walk out, they put them these big fences up, they walk to their cars, it's in this gated area. I was at an Atlanta Falcons game, same thing, they're in this private area. But, you know, you parked, I love this story in the book, when you went at the Dolphins, you parked with the, they didn't give you parking space. Phases. So you park with everybody else, and after the game is over, you're out there tailgating after the game with the fans. Absolutely. I, you hit it right on the head. I put a whole chapter in the book about that because you talk about enhancing the relationship between the team and the fans. We had parking split spots that were right out there with everybody else, and we got there <laughs> early, so we were close. But a lot of those folks that were there before the game and after the game as well, sometimes four hours after the game, we would sit around and eat hot dogs. Were right there in the area and uh, and didn't even park. They walked in, but the others parked. And we we got a great elbow rubbing kind of uh, shoulder rubbing situation with the fans. You got to know them by name. A lot of the kids there that that came in, uh, some of us players would get together and take them into the stadium with us and get them into the game and and uh, from the locale there. And then after the game, we'd uh, bring hot dogs and things. And we started the uh, tailgate thing. Kind of started right about then. I think Pittsburgh claims that, but I think. Miami has as much claim to it as anybody because we, my gosh, the Miami police used to come at about 10 o'clock at night, four hours after the game was over or five and tell us, fellas, you got to get out of the parking lot. I said, no, it's not going to. Finally, the mayor gave us a special uh, letter saying that we could all stay there late after the game and have hot dogs together and sit around and reminisce about the game. Oh, that is just an, that's just an awesome story. And I just was talking about one friend who's a huge dolphin fan and and like you mentioned to him and this, and he went through and listed almost your entire team. So we can't go through all the players, but certainly your running mate, Jim kick uh, again, with this backfield that you were in, you you're used to being in these great backfields with Jim kick and Mercury Morris. And when you were like, like in Syracuse with Floyd little, it must've been fun, you know, having this running back with you that you guys get along so well. And, you both are, you know, carrying the ball constantly. Well, it was. It was myself and Jim initially when Shula first came and we were winning. Jim was kind of in the lead back position and I was doing a little block, a little more blocking. But then Shula saw the, the potential. He brought a guy named Monty Clark with him who was an old offensive lineman from the Browns and was becoming a, a, an offensive line coach for us. And he loved to use the power running game. So he saw a mixture with the three backs. But that only worked if the three backs, myself, Jim Kick, and Mercury Morris, got along. Well, fortunately, all three of us enjoyed each other's company. I mean, there's never been any animosity between us. I think Jim and Merck were competitive as far as wanting to be in the game all the time, but that's a healthy situation. They were close friends and were clear till the end. When Jim passed away, Mercury was the guy that was calling on him the most when he was in the, in the hospital in his final, final days. That suggests that... Uh, we understood it was competitive on the field. We were competitive even with each other in some respects, but it was all in a healthy mode, and we all wanted to win, and whatever that took, we were willing to sacrifice in order to obtain. And you had Paul Warfield, uh, the star wide receiver that came from Cleveland. And I loved how you talked in the book, how you utilized how, like, we blocked for Paul. So when he got the passes, you know, he, he would be able to run out and he blocked for us. And it all just worked together. It wasn't like this diva wide receiver that just ran down the field long routes. We were all one, one cohesive unit. 
Well, I talk about it in the book. That happened on one play when Paul first got there in 1970. I turned. Uh, I did not like a defensive back that played at Buffalo, and I saw an opportunity when I was running the ball, power running up through the middle, to turn the whole thing that was coming with me. <laughs> the avalanche of, uh, of humanity that I was at the front of, the vanguard of, I turned and hit that defensive back at the last second and knocked him silly, of course, with all that momentum coming. When I went back to the huddle, Paul Warfield looked at me and said, thanks, Doc. And then he he had that guy in one-on-one coverage the next play because his eyes were still crossed from the impact. That's when I realized how how much I could contribute to the passing game by running into the defensive backs downfield. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, we're down here in South Florida. I, I think you just mentioned you were in North Carolina right now. But, you know, it certainly gets hot here in Florida and certainly July and August. And I don't think I see a person without carrying a bottle of water as they're walking around. And not only in those practices that Shula put you through, not only did you not get water, you had four-a-days, not two-a-days, not three-a-days. You had four-a-day practices. How in the world did you survive that? I don't know. <laughs> I think we were uh, – it was either get in great shape or die. It was kind of <laughs> – I kid about that now. It was it was pretty serious at the time. We had a couple of fellas fall down from uh, heat uh, postation and, uh, and, you know, getting too overheated and just uh, – having a near stroke and uh, it was a, it was a serious thing i don't think you could uh, you could execute that today i don't think the union would let that happen but at the same time that was then and now it's now uh it was as it turned out it was a great thing and it made a difference in several of those games in the fourth quarter in 85 plus degree heat which happened several times uh one game in uh, 71 or 72 comes from the san francisco 49ers game and just weren't used to that heat in the fourth quarter they put up a great fight, but in the fourth quarter, we just handled them because they just couldn't keep up with it. The physical demand was too much in that kind of heat. We had an 85-plus degree day, and any time that happened, we knew we had an edge right away. So in 70, and 70, you made the playoffs, lost to the Raiders. 71, you made it to the Super Bowl and lose to the Cowboys. But before that 72 season, you had a feeling like this is going to be our year, the, the extra practice after losing the Super Bowl. You, I think you said Shula made you keep watching the film of the game. So that must have been like you had a feeling that, that 72 could have been a special year. We knew that Shula was going to be more intent than ever because right after Super Bowl six, he threw everybody out of the locker room except the coaches and players and said, I want every one of you to remember exactly how you feel right now. We're going to think about that. And we're going to draw from this and we're going to go one game at a time with the idea of playing every game as though it were the Super Bowl. He never predicted an undefeated season. That is untrue. What he did predict was that we were going to take every game seriously. And he lived up to his word. Trust me, read the book. I account for it. <laughs> when he said that, Jim Kick looked at me because we had already been through four days in 85 degree heat with no water. Jim Kick looked over at me <laughs> sitting in that locker room after Super Bowl six when Shula said that. He winked and said, buckle up. <laughs> and his prediction was true because that's what happened. We never intended to go with the, you know, never had an intention or even a uh, passing thought of winning every game. No one had ever done that. But what we were going to do, according to Shula, was prepare for every game as though it was a Super Bowl. That shows his intent. And we did because he made us. And trust me when I say his foot was in our butt all the time. You know, he no detail was too small to be over, you know, to be overlooked. He would bring it up and dwell on it until you just did it right just to get him to shut up. And that's the way it was. 
And we see today when quarterbacks get hurt, they're like, oh, our season's over. We lost our star quarterback. You lose in that year. I think people forget, after four games, Bob Greasy got injured and was out the rest of the, the regular season, and you still were able to win even losing your star quarterback. Well, he was out for the remainder of the regular season, but he came back in the playoffs. He, his leg was broke. Uh, it was against San Diego about the fourth game. And a guy went airborne and landed on Bob's leg just as Bob was following through, throwing a pass. And it broke his uh, leg down below his knee. And he literally was, was gone for six or seven weeks. And we had a fellow named Earl Morrill step forward. And I think that just, uh, you know, having a quality player like Earl there, that was a great addition to our team that year. Really smart move by Shula preseason. And we got him, and Earl just, uh, he was just one of those detail-oriented guys. He had played for Shula <laughs> for many years before. And he knew, and he knew what the what the whole setup was, and he just came in and clapped his hands, and, and we took it one play at a time, and that's the way it went. Amazing. And you had some great games. I mean, you had the Monday night football game. It's the Cardinals. You beat Joe Namath. So it was like, you know, you played each game seemed to be, uh, as you as you detail in your book, each game was a super, it's almost a Super Bowl each week because everything, there was a motivation for each game. Well, you said you made a statement that you beat Joe Namath. Nobody beats Joe Namath. <laughs> what you might be lucky enough to do is outlast him, and that's what our defense did. And out, outsmart him a couple a couple times. We had two safeties, one named Jake Scott and another named Dick Anderson, strong and weak safeties on defense. And Namath, uh, they had Namath's uh, strategy down to a science, and they knew how to read him and they knew how to fool him. Until this day, when I get, I put this in the book, when I see Joe at the Hall of Fame, he always comes over and sits down next to me, and we, t- we chat for a while. And sooner or later, he brings up Anderson and Jake Scott from 72 and starts talking to me about how did those guys, they fooled me a couple times. I still don't know understand how they did what they did. And he'll start talking about it. It's just, uh, it's just, you can just count on it like the sun coming up. That's just the way he never has got over it. He's still mulling it over on how it happened. <laughs> well, the 72 playoffs, you beat the Browns and then my Steelers, I'm a, I grew up, that was my, my Steeler team. And I was so young and I remember my, we, they, it was such a weird thing in the schedule is that you didn't play bet if you had the best record, you had to go to Pittsburgh to play the game. So that was, it was blacked out where I live. So I had to go, my parents drove me to Maryland to go watch it in hotel rooms. So I could watch the game. <laughs> and, uh, but what a game. I mean, the Steelers, that was the beginning of the Steeler dynasty that we did, that came out, and you had the dynasty. It really is one of those games that people should just be watching because you have two of the greatest football teams to ever play played on that field that day that you ended up winning. And it was a very close game. It came right down to the wire. One or two plays made the difference. We had a punter named uh, Larry Seipel who saw that Pittsburgh defense was, was uh, taking off early instead of uh, waiting for the punt to be punted. They were leaving early to set up a blocking formation, hoping that Frenchie Fuqua was a great re- punt returner they had, could uh, get behind the wall of blockers set up early and, and return the ball. So uh, Larry Seipel went to Shula and said, it looks like I could run and make the first down. And Shula said, if, you're, if you believe you can do it, do it. <laughs> and, uh, which, which translated to, if you're going home with us, you better make it is what that translated to. <laughs> but Seiple saw it and did it. And, uh, well, that was the difference. That moment, that was the turning point in that game. It just uh, so many times through the course of that season, that undefeated season, one player, not always a starter or regular player, not a not so-called star player or anything, nothing like that. It was a, 
a backup player or a special teams player made a play that made a difference. And uh, that was one of them right there that you just alluded to. And then the Super Bowl, the, the crowning, you're up 14 nothing, totally dominated game. But people really forget that you actually came in, I think it was even. Like, you might have been an underdog by a point or two, but you play Washington and you're up 14-0, and then your kicker tried to do something crazy in the game, and, and that sort of made the game a little closer. Well, there was a low kick. It got uh, it bounced back, got blocked and bounced back and bounced up into the arms of uh, Gary Premium, our kicker. And for years, Shula had hollered at him, always fall on the ball, don't try to do anything with it, just fall on it, because we have a great defense. And Garrow, uh, in, a, in a weak moment, tried to throw it. He's uh, left-handed, he threw it with his right hand. <laughs> but it was intercepted and run back, and instead of uh, 17 to nothing in a 17-0 season, which was destiny, we had a situation where, uh, you know, we had just breathed life into the Redskins, and it was 14-7 with several minutes left in the game. So... It was a very tough situation. A guy named Jake Scott, our uh, weak side safety, came through and intercepted a, a, a ball late in the fourth quarter, just caught it with his fingertips, made the difference in that in that game. And that's I liked in the book how you talked about all everything you did after you won the Super Bowl, because you don't really see that today, where like you're on every single television show. I have friends that don't really follow football. They remember, oh yeah, I remember that uh, he was on these TV shows, and and you see some, you know, you were on you were on uh, TV shows and different shows with Michael Douglas and Johnny Carson and those things. That must have been so fun to to go all around, really, that the post Super Bowl tour. Well, it was. I think Jim Kick and myself uh, got an unfair amount of the publicity about that with the Butch and Sundance thing. So we we got it. We capitalized on it twice as much. I think some of the other players were much much as much deserving as we were. But we had the time to do it. And the off season was a great time to go around and do those things, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We had the invitation, so we we took up on it. <laughs> That's great. And you mentioned in your book. You know, you went in '73, 12 and two, and you over and won the Super Bowl. You were 32 and two over two years, and you even said that the '73 team was probably better than the '72 team in terms of just the quality of play because you just dominated everybody. Well, the dominance factor. We had a couple of weak games where we finally just took a breather and and. Uh, <laughs> We lost a couple of games in it. It was, uh, but I think that the the uh, '73 team, as far as ball domination during the game, and just uh, you know, we didn't have as many close games. Let's put it that way. Uh, there was only one or two situations in '73 where it, you know it was a close game, and uh, the rest of the time it was just uh, pretty much uh, a given that we were going to win. And then it was, you know, you, you spent time in the book talking about how the World Football League came in and you left the Dolphins to go to the World Football League. Actually, you said that you know, all the players appreciated that because the salaries that you got in the, from the WFL actually increased the salaries that, you know, you, you just mentioned eight times. It wasn't like you took a contract as like a one and a half times. It was eight times the salaries, and, and that sort of raised all the salaries in the NFL. Well, it was a time of change, and I think those Super Bowls, when they brought the Super Bowl on in those early years, it... Uh, uh, the the game seemed to really be enhanced. It put the NFL into turbo drive. And I think that the salaries hadn't kept up with it. And we were the uh, link, myself and Jim Kick and, and Paul Warfield and some of the other fellas that jumped to the uh, the new league. that made people aware of just uh, how valuable that football talent was. And it, it, in accordance with that, we started leveling off the salaries a little more. 
And then you mentioned in your book, you spend a lot of time uh, talking about your post-football career in terms of working, doing the things you love in the, in the, in the wilderness, in Alaska, and, and stories about getting marooned on a boat. And it's pretty exciting that it seemed like it was more dangerous than your football career. I have a way of finding trouble, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Having been a farm boy in Ohio growing up the way I did in the country, out on a dirt road, you know, kind of in the backwoods in the in the middle 50s, uh, it was just a different lifestyle. I, I wanted to see the real wilderness. After reading about Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and uh, the Western Frontier and all of those things, uh, finding a magazine field and stream my mother bought me when I was probably 10 years old showing Alaska and I thought well that's the place that's the outback that's the new that's the new wilderness and I want to go and I went and I enjoyed it we started a show we were up there for over 20 years did several hundred shows up there and got to see a lot of the most remote places that we have in Alaska and trust me folks when I tell you I hope you read the book that's fine but even if you don't check up on Alaska if you have any end to ever go and see the wilderness, the true wilderness. It's still there, and you can still go see it, and that's what I did. Wow, and then you talk you know, in the book about the brotherhood you still have over the many years with your Dolphin teammates, and, and with a, the, you know, what binds you is the undefeated season, and how many of your teammates have passed away, but that you're still so close to, to so many of those players. Absolutely. We look forward to getting together every year and the Dolphins have us back and we come and sit in the, in the corner and watch practice the night before and then go to the game the next day. And it's a lot of fun. The stories get wilder and wilder. Our recollections, uh, me included, I like to remember things a little more the way I like them than the way they were, perhaps. But I, we tried to be very fair in the book and, and take an honest approach to the way, it, uh, the way the circumstances happened and the way the facts popped up. And I think we, we accomplished that in doing it. I feel good about the book, and I feel it's very true to what happened. But when you get together with the other fellows and we start talking about on third down when, when uh, somebody blitzed from the Jets and who picked him up, there, there's always a difference of opinion on who, who did what when. Well, I encourage Larry, I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports, and I really encourage people to read this book because, I, again, that nostalgia back, and it's like 50 years since then, and to think that you wrote this book that just came out just now, um, you, it's available, it just came out last week, uh, just tremendous book about the, about the Dolphins and about your career. Uh, it's, it's a must-read. Pick it up at Barnes & Noble, pick it up at Amazon, anything like that. So thanks a lot, Larry, for coming on and talking about it. Thank you for having me, Ira. See you again. Hopefully we'll be able to do it again if I write another book about Alaska. I'd love to talk to you again about it. <laughs> well, Alaska and South Florida, we're so different. But no, I would, love to, I would love to have you back on. It'd be tremendous. If you ever make it into the West Palm Beach area, we'd love to have you in studio. Good deal. See you soon.